If you have your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Numbers chapter 2. If you weren't here with us last time, we began a new study in the book of Numbers. We sort of talked about some of the uh, overall aspects of the book of Numbers, gave a little bit of background, so that study is available online. If that would kind of help you to lay the foundation, we just talked about some of those things and went through the first chapter. Again, the book of Numbers, in essence, is God's historical record for us of the wanderings or the journey of the children of Israel through the wilderness season that they went through. And again, just a reminder to us, even as in the book of Genesis, we see that God is the God of origins, that God is the source, the beginning, the origin of everything in our lives. Uh, In the book of Exodus, we see that God is the God of our salvation. He's the God of our redemption. He's the God who shed his blood for our redemption and pays the price for our salvation. In the book of Leviticus, we saw that uh, that God is our holiness and that God is our reason and our focus for worship. And God spoke to us about how he is to be worshipped specifically because of who he is. And, and now the book of Numbers really reveals to us God as the God of our journeys. And, and all of our lives include a journey, whether it's that journey from the day of our birth to the day of our death. Uh, God loves us. God has his hand upon our lives in a sense and is seeking to draw us and to steer us and to guide us and direct us just because his lovingness and his graciousness towards all of our lives, even if we're resistant from him and running from him, uh, God's persistent and he will chase us and pursue us and even in the midst of our disobedience continue to keep trying to reach out to us and reveal himself to us. But certainly as a As a child of God, as a believer, when we make a commitment uh, to the Lord, all the more uh, is he then, in a sense, uh, the God of our journey, our spiritual pilgrimage as we uh, are like sojourners passing through this life and uh, making our journey through this world as we walk with Jesus. God's involved in all those things. His spirit is wanting to direct us and help us. And, And the book of Numbers gives to us God in that sense, showing us how God was with the children of Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness. Again, they're beginning that journey now, which becomes a lot longer journey than it was ever intended to be. We know because of their disobedience, it becomes almost a four-decade process, almost 40 years, what could have been maybe in about two weeks' time. But because of their disobedience and their unbelief, uh, and they're not trusting the Lord and obeying the Lord. Uh, unfortunately, they put themselves through a lot more testing and trials, but yet God was so gracious, even in the midst of that. Uh, he took care of them, he preserved them, uh, but yet he was the God who was with them in all of their journeys. And chapter 1 gave to us, really part of the reason why we see the book of Numbers called the way it is, sort of a census or a numbering of the children of Israel. Chapter 26 will take another census. That's why we get this title of the book, the book of Numbers, because it's a time where God numbers the people on two different occasions historically. And chapter 2 now begins to give to us uh, God setting some structure into the life of the congregation of Israel now. He's beginning to work among them. Again, this is some 2 to 3 million people. I mean, an immense group of people journeying through the wilderness. So God, as a result of that, begins to implement now some structure 
and order and, and what would be necessary so that they could efficiently and productively move together in a collective movement of people as they journey through the wilderness. Now, chapter 2 will give to us basically the layout of how the different tribes of the children of Israel were to camp where they were specifically to set up. Again, if you can imagine this large multitude of people moving and then when they would settle down and God would lead them to stop, when they would set up camp, I mean, it, it could be a real uh, pandemonium and quite a, 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 a disorganized thing if it weren't for God giving some instruction. So God says, look, I want this group to camp here and, and God sets structure and order and tells each person where their place is to be and gives that to us here in this second chapter. So look with me, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp, notice, by his own standard beside the emblems of his father's house. They shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. Now, in all these things, we take notice the tabernacle of meeting, which was where the presence of God dwelt and was manifest among his people. That's always in the center. They always camp around the tabernacle of meeting and, and God's presence was always in the center of his people. And I, and I think it's a good reminder that uh, we should always order our lives around the centrality of the presence of God. The presence of God should be in the center of everything that we measure off of our lives. It should all be measured off of God's presence. God is with us. God is among us. God is in our midst. And even as a congregation of people among the church, the, the centrality of who we are and what we're about should be about the presence of God. It shouldn't be about me. It shouldn't be about you. It shouldn't be about what activities we're doing. Or it, it should be about the presence of God. We assemble because of the presence of God. And the presence of God being our midst should be the thing that we are most concerned about and that we're all focused on. Uh, you know, it's interesting that Jesus, when he is addressing the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation, uh, he's addressing a church, believers, and he says, uh, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. Uh, and I'll dine with him and, and he with me. And again, it's almost as if you get the sense that the church had sort of shut Jesus' presence out of the church. And so Jesus is on the outside of the church. They're still doing the church thing. And Jesus is knocking on the door saying, uh, uh, could I be a part of that? I mean, could you think you could open the door and let my presence back in there? I mean, initially you assembled for me at first, but it is amazing, is it not, how sometimes all the trappings of Christianity and churchianity, I don't know if that's a real word, I just made that up, but uh, you know, all, all the stuff we go through and somehow in the midst of all that, uh, in all the flurry and activity and the, and the uh, almost we get so accustomed to doing what we're doing, somehow we forget the whole purpose of why we're doing what we're doing uh, and and. And that's for Jesus. It's to be in the presence of God, to assemble because of the presence of God, because he is in our midst and he wants to be among us and that our focus should primarily be upon it. That should what we should be caring about the most. Hey, well, is God pleased with this? I don't think we should have a meeting and say, hey, did I like that meeting? No, I think we should have a meeting, a true worship meeting should be, was the Lord pleased with that meeting? Was he honored as the guest of honor? Is, you know, is, is he glorified with the way we're conducting ourselves, what we're doing as a church, not doing as a church? It's him we want to please. It's his presence. He's the unseen guest of honor. And they had the tabernacle in the midst of the congregation and they all camped around it. So when you came out your tent flap, you looked towards the tabernacle. You were reminded of the presence. Yes, that's why we are who we are. 
That's why we're stationed where we're stationed. That's why we're sitting still and not moving right now. Or that's why we're getting up and moving now because everything was based off of the presence of God and God being in their midst and what God was doing. So here we see that they're to assemble together. Verse 2 says, Every camp by his own standard beside the emblems of his father's house. Now, we have no scriptural evidence of exactly what that's referring to, these standards and emblems. Some commentators think what this is inferring here, and very likely that this is a reference to kind of like flags or banners. We're going to see that what God does is on the, you know, the east and the north and the west and the south, God is going to tell three tribes to camp uh, in each of those four uh, quadrants, and, and it seems this could be a reference to the idea of there being some type of a banner or a flag, maybe something with a particular color or maybe an emblem or a design on it so that when you came and, and moved into an area and as you're kind of moving as a mass of people, you could say, oh, the, the, I see, there's the banner of Judah. That's where we're at over there. We're, we're green. We're the green team. You know, so, so if you lost little Junior and he's running around with all of his you know, little friends, we're, look, just when we stop... Look for the green flag. Okay, Daddy, I can do that. The green flag. I remember the green flag. It's the green flag with a line on it. I got that. And so perhaps God was giving them this way to order themselves because there is this reference here to the emblems of the Father's house and, and camping according to their uh, standards and emblems. And it's probably maybe somewhat of an inference exactly what they were. Uh, we can only speculate, so we won't uh, give much to that. But notice they also were to camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. The idea is that they were to leave space around where the tabernacle was, where the presence of God was. Now, that was probably for two reasons. First of all, we'll see because the Levites, the tribe that did the ministry of the tabernacle, they were to camp on the interior of the camp, close to the tabernacle of meeting where the house of God was, so they had access to the ministry and work that they needed to do there, and that they were a buffer, in a sense, between God and his people. And secondarily, when the people would assemble, God probably was leaving room so that if he wanted them to assemble together, there was room that they could come together. They weren't too tightly pressed in against the place where the tabernacle of meeting was. So verse 3 now begins to describe to us these different positions where they're camped at. Let's just read verses 3 to 9. It kind of gives you a sense, and then we'll skim through some of these other things to be a little more merciful to you in regards to a lot of the details here. Verse 3 says, On the east side, toward the rising of the sun, those of the standard of the forces with Judah shall camp according to their armies. A nation, the son of Abinadab, shall be the leader of the children of Judah, and his army was numbered at 74,600. And those who camped next to him, the second tribe there on the east, was to be the tribe of Issachar. And there we get the name of the leader of Issachar and the number of his army, 54,400. Verse 7, and then the third tribe in the eastern quadrant would be the tribe of Zebulun. And there again we get the name who was the leader of that tribe and those who were the number of the tribe of Zebulun. Verse 9, all who were numbered according to their armies of the forces with Judah were 186,400. And these shall break camp first. So we begin to see the pattern here. God laid this out. On the eastern side you had the three tribes of Judah Issachar and Zebulun and they were to, tr to camp on the eastern side of the tabernacle whenever they settled down and made camp and notice verse 9 tells us these were also the first to break camp 
So you get the location of where they were to situate themselves. God says, this is where I want you to be, the position I want you to be in. Again, they didn't uh, vote for which tribes hung out next to which tribes. This was divinely ordered by God. God said, this is who I want on the east. This is who I want on the West. I want these three to work together and I want these three to work together. Again, this is God by divine decree determining these things, speaking them. All the people need to do is receive God's direction and implement what God's telling them to do. So on the Eastern side, we have Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And God says, and when it's time to break camp, they head out first. And God's going to give the order of how each one, who was to go first, who was to go second, who was to go third, and who was to bring up the rear. Again, it wasn't, why do they get to go first? Why do we always get the back? We always get the rear. You know, This was God's decree. They simply were to fall into place where God told them to be. And I do think something interesting, take note, as God tells us first here in verses 3 to 9, that it was Judah who was sort of the, the designated over that quadrant there with those three tribes. And it was Judah who broke camp first. Now, I find that interesting because from what tribe was Jesus from? He was the lion of the tribe of Judah. And in a sense, you could say, in a sense, that Jesus, the Messiah, was in the loins of Judah at that time because that is the line through which the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come. And so I find this interesting. Here, though not literally at this point in time, historically, what do you have? You have the whole camp, the whole congregation being led, Judah in the front, where you have Jesus, in a sense, the presence of Jesus out front, leading the congregation and everyone following as they would move from one destination to the other. And you know what? I tell you, I think in the church, my understanding is that what Jesus says, that's exactly how it's still supposed to be. Uh, That it is supposed to be the lion from the tribe of Judah, Jesus, who is the head of the church. And when the Lord's on the move, we just follow him and go where he's going. Uh, It's not us. It's not a pastor. It's not the elders. It's not democratic vote of the congregation. It's not that idea. It's, hey, when Jesus leads, we just follow. Uh, You know, the wonderful thing is with sheep, we're not, God's not dependent upon the IQ of the sheep. In order to stay healthy and and safe as a sheep, all we need to do is one thing. Just follow the shepherd. And Jesus is the good shepherd. So as Jesus begins to move, we take our cues from him. We follow when he leads and where he leads. And interesting here, I just find it not a coincidence that Judah is the first to break camp as they would move forth. Now, verse 10 Uh, down through verse 17 then gives us the southern side and notice on the south side those who camped on the south verse 10 was to be the tribe of Reuben and then we also see in verse 12 it was to be the tribe of Simeon and verse 13 the tribe of Gad so we have Reuben Simeon and Gad on the southern side to camp and gives us the number there in verse 16 that they were 150,000 450 and they were to second uh, the second group to break camp verse 17 gives us a little insight that the tabernacle of meeting shall move out with the camp of the levites look what it says here who were in the middle of the camp so that's what we were just talking about Uh, the tabernacle would be traveling with the levites who were centrally located between all the camps they would move out everyone in his place verse 18 then tells us down through verse 24 who was to camp on the west and on the western quadrant it was to be the tribe of Ephraim verse 18 
the tribe of Manasseh, verse 20, and then verse 22, the tribe of Benjamin. So those three tribes were to station themselves and camp on the western side, and it says, verse 24, at the end of it, that they were then the third group to break camp. It's the fastest we've ever gone through a chapter, hasn't it? I can just see the smiles on your face. <laughs> verse 25 uh, tells us then on the northern side was the last three tribes. Again, we're not considering Levi here because they were centrally located in the middle. So verse 25 down through verse 31 tells us on the northern side was to camp Dan. Verse 27, the tribe of Asher. And verse 29, the tribe of Naphtali. And all of them together numbered, verse 31, 170, uh, excuse me, 157,600. And they were to break camp last. So they were to bring up the rear guard and you know what? God probably had purposes in that because at times uh, uh, you would be vulnerable. You know, you'd be attacked from the rear. That was, you know, that was just as important as leading the way was, you know, supporting what would happen from the rear because, you know, you were vulnerable if someone tried to attack you from behind. So this was an important role and God purposely put who he wanted in that place to function in that capacity. Now, you know, there are those that say, and I'm just going to throw this out, and some of you perhaps have probably ever heard this before, that when you look at how these uh, tribes, God asked them to camp, you know, three on the north, three on the south, three on the east, three on the west, and when you look at the numbers numerically, there are those who uh, portray this and say that if you look down from above, what you would in essence see the way God tells them to camp and the numbers would be a symbol of the cross. Uh, and, you know, very possible. I mean, it's very interesting. Again, this is a Christocentric book, a Christocentric Bible that we have. It's all about Jesus. And as we talked about last week, in all of these things, God sets them before us. Yes, they're literal things that happen, but God is revealing Jesus all throughout Scripture. It's very interesting. We're going to see in the book of Numbers later on that when Balak is asking Balaam to curse the people, as he looks down upon them and he looks down upon their camp, there's something that just unsettles him and it astonishes him. And I can't help but to wonder if maybe again, because remember the spirit comes upon him and he can't curse them. He tries to bring a curse upon them and he, every time he tries to curse them, remember what happens? He blesses them. Again, if somebody's under the cross of Christ, if my life is under the blood and the sufficiency and the redemption of Jesus Christ, the devil has no access to curse, destroy, or in a sense take charge. I'm under the blessing and the anointing and the safety and the covering of Jesus. So again, was it because he was seeing, in a sense, the cross that the Spirit of God was coming upon him and therefore just blessing would come out of his mouth because of that blessing of what it's like when we're under the life and the person of Christ? Uh, very possible. We're not... Certain. Verse 32 then tells us these are the ones who were numbered of the children of Israel by their father's houses. All who were numbered according to their armies of the forces total were 603,550. But the Levites, take notice verse 33, because this ties to what we're looking at ahead. The Levites, as we said, they were not numbered among the children of Israel, just as the Lord commanded so again they're numbering this tribe numbering this tribe but god says don't number the levites that's a specific instruction we're going to see why in the next chapter but god tells them not to do this now again very critical what obeying the voice of the lord because god says number them and number them and number them now probably after about the seventh or eighth tribe you're thinking i i, I know what he's going to tell us next he's going to say number them too 
And he's going to say, number them too. And again, okay, so we're numbering people. We've numbered the seventh tribe. We've numbered the eighth tribe. Of course, and then God says, no, but I don't want you to number the Levites. And again, what a great reminder. We are to do what God tells us to do when God tells us to do it and only when God tells us to do it. How easy it is for us, even in our spiritual lives at times, to get used to routine and experience and maybe the way things always are. We almost get in the flow of things. Of course, yeah, we, we did this. We always do this. So we, this is what we do. So and, and if God says to do it, then do it. But if God says don't do it, then you don't do it. Or maybe if God says don't do it, and here we're going to see with the tribe of Levi, God says don't do it until I tell you to do it. Because not too far after this, we're going to see the next chapter, God's going to say, now number the Levites. And there, if they're anything like me, I would have said, now wait a minute, he told us not to number the Levites. Right, in the last chapter he did, but now he's saying to number them. Again, so important we be current with the Lord and we listen to what God's telling us to do when he tells us to do it and only when he tells us to do it. That's why it's so important to be in constant fellowship with the Lord and to learn how to listen to his voice, to hear his voice, not to just go by routine and formality and what we know and what we're comfortable with, or maybe at times even again, you know, what, the, what it seems we should do or what others are saying we should do, but that we're listening to the voice of the Lord. We're staying in step. I think the greatest illustration of that, one of the greatest ones, is with the book of uh, Genesis chapter 22 where God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And he tells him to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham obeys, gets the wood, gets the fire. They're heading up the mountain, right? He's got the knife in his hand. And, and when he gets everything all set up, he ties and a son allows him to be bound to the altar. They've committed together to do this in faith and obedience. It probably took everything within them, every fiber within them as a father and a son are saying, why would God ask us to do this? You're the promised child. Why would God ask us to, you know, to, to crucify and to put to death a death blow, the very thing that we waited so long for? This is going to destroy his entire plan. You are the promised son. And he raises the knife and they finally brought himself to the place of obedience. Then God says, stop. Don't do it. Now, if I'm Abraham, I'm going, that can't be God. Because God told me to do this. Right, he did. But now God's telling you don't. And if Abraham didn't listen to God, what would he have done? He would have made a bloody mess. And no pun intended with that. He would have made a bloody mess. I know what I... Right, God did say that, but if God communicated a new signal, a different message, we have to be current with the Lord. It's good to be obedient. It's good to listen to the Lord in our lives. We can't go off of yesterday's message. We have to stay current with the Lord in his word, in prayer, listening to his voice, and being obedient to what he's showing us to do. Uh, now, this has become the longest chapter. Let's get going. <laughs> So the Lord says, don't number those Levites. The children of Israel did according, notice, they were obedient, that all that the Lord commanded Moses, and that's always when things are well, when we do what God commands us. So they camped by their standards and broke camp, each one by his family, according to their father's houses. Now chapters 3 and 4, if you did read ahead, basically now begin to deal with the priests 
and the tribe of Levi and God asking to take a census of them and explaining some of their duties and ministries as those who would serve as the tabernacle ministers. Chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now these are the records of Aaron and Moses when the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. And these are the names of the sons of Aaron. Remember, Aaron was the high priest. He's from the tribe of Levi, but he's particularly the one who God set aside, Aaron and the Aaronic line, the family of Aaron within the tribe of Levi. And the names of his sons were Nadab, the firstborn, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron. They were the anointed priests. Again, not every Levite was a priest. You had to uh, specifically be of the line of Aaron, that family within the tribe. They were the anointed priests whom he consecrated to minister as priests. Verse 4, Nadab and Abihu had died before the Lord when they offered profane fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. And they had laid... Excuse me, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar ministered as priests in the presence of Aaron, their father. So uh, here, verse uh, one through four, remind us of what we read and studied together back in Leviticus chapter 10, where if you remember, as the fire of God came down initially and lit the altar, the place of sacrifice, as God instituted the worship system, the priests had been given specific instruction who was to do what. And remember, it tells us back in that chapter there that these two sons of Aaron, in somewhat of a presumptuous way, uh, there's some indication it seems, maybe they may have been under the intoxication of alcohol. We can't be exactly certain, but in a presumptuous way without doing it in obedience to the Lord, they went in with some sort of unauthorized fire and brought that into the presence of God. And as a result of that, God being zealous for his glory uh, actually judged them severely and they actually lost their lives. They were, they were put to death and God spoke and said, before the people, I must be regarded as holy. So again, whether this was... Uh, again, them intruding into things they were not supposed to, whether this was them trying to draw some type of glory or attention to themselves uh, as those who ministered before God's people, which again, God says, I'll share my glory with no other. The quickest way to kill effectiveness in any ministry opportunity is to begin to seek glory for ourselves and to rob God of his glory. So uh, God gives here this reminder as he's going to now give some instruction to the tribe of Levi and to Aaron and his sons of what their roles and specific functions were. God gives them a reminder, look, this is a sacred duty. This is not a trivial thing to have the privilege to serve me. This is something that should be reverently valued and cherished as a stewardship. You know, we should never get overly casual with the things of God. Again, as Christians, we need to remember, look, this is a blood-bought church. We, we need to keep our fingerprints off as much as possible. This is a blood-bought privilege to be able to minister and to serve God and to serve his people. And, and here God reminds them of what happened and how these two sons lost their lives and the grief in that, the tragedy, the, you know, the utter ruining of what could have been a great opportunity and how God had to deal severely with them in that particular situation. And just sort of, again, I think bringing reverence to them and reminding us now that Aaron is down two sons and God had to, in essence, replace them, which all of us are replaceable. And God had to replace them with the other two sons. We'll see Eliezer and Ithamar 
they then had to step in and fulfill some of these roles apart from their brother's presence anymore. Verse 5, the Lord spoke to Moses and said to him, bring the tribe of Levi near and present them before Aaron the priest that they may, notice, this would be their role, the tribe of Levi, serve him. And they shall attend to his needs and the needs of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of meeting to do the work of the tabernacle. And also they shall attend to all the furnishings of the tabernacle, that's all the furniture, and the needs of the children of Israel to do the work of the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are given entirely to him from among the children of Israel. And so you shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall attend to their priesthood. But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So again, we see God's order here. God gives specifically the appointment by his choice and intention to Aaron and his sons to function in the priesthood, to serve as those mediators in the Old Testament covenant as things were, uh, as an intermediary between God and the people. And again, keep in mind, with the whole tabernacle, the structure, the, the furnishings of that, that was a lot to maintain. And when they would break camp and move, remember, this was like a mobile worship center. When they would break camp and move, uh, that would be a lot of work and a whole lot to carry for just Aaron and his two sons. So God here gives them, if you would, some, some help, some support in the work. God designates the tribe of Levi to help be servants alongside of them to function in a role whereby they could help share some of the workload in the ministry and the, the weight of responsibilities and the workload, which was quite intensive, to move that whole tabernacle as they would transport it from location to location. So God says, now bring the tribe of Levi... That's who he chooses, the tribe of Levi. Again, sovereign decision by God's grace. He elects the tribe of Levi for this. He says, present them before Aaron the priest that they may serve him. So again, their primary role, the Levites, that whole tribe, was to serve in a way that was supportive to what the high priest was doing there, Aaron the high priest in his ministry. They were, it says, verse 7, to attend to his needs and to the needs of the whole congregation to do the work of the tabernacle. Now, in many ways, this is just a beautiful picture, I think, uh, symbolically even of what our privilege is as Christians in a New Testament sense, is, is we get the privilege to serve our great high priest, Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is our great high priest. And the Bible even tells us in First Peter that we are a royal priesthood. Uh, we don't have a priesthood in that, in a sense of what existed in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Bible tells us that we don't have to go through a priest. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. We don't have to approach God through another person. I don't have any more access to God than you do. You don't have any more access to God than I do. We have the same access to go directly to the presence of God through the the intermediary, Jesus Christ himself, who is our great high priest. And we come directly through him. And the Bible says that we now, as New Testament saints, we, with the Spirit of God indwelling us, we are now the tabernacle, the temple of God. And we also, the Bible says, are a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. So we have a priestly ministry, in a sense, to serve in the aspects of the ministry of God as the church. But what a great privilege we have, in a sense, many of the same ways, like this picture here in the Old Testament sense, that we get to serve him 
We get to serve our great high priest. And when we do that, I think we should want to be sensitive to exactly what we see here. Attending to his needs. Jesus, what do you need done? Jesus, you're the great high priest. You're in charge of all this. And and Jesus, what do you need done? Not what do I want to do. Jesus, what do you need done? Show me what you need done. I, I want to do my part. I want to serve. And Lord, what is the need? It says here, and the needs of the whole congregation. Lord, you know what the needs are of the congregation. Lord, what are the needs? How can I serve? What can I do to serve you and to meet the needs that are on your heart and your agenda? And what can I do to serve the people whom you love and who you bought with your blood and who you care about and you want to minister? How can I function in that role? And again, notice the the repetition, verse 7, as well as verse 8, again, to do the work of the tabernacle. Again, verse 8, to do the work of the of the tabernacle. You don't you can't miss those terms when you're talking about serving the Lord and functioning in any capacity of ministry. Is is God says it's work. <laughs> and there are needs. And those needs never end. They're they're continuous. You know, I find it very interesting in the New Testament when Paul's speaking regarding the role of the elder. The the, the elder in the New Testament, Paul says that he who desires this work desires a a, a good work. So there's to be a desire. It's okay to have a godly desire to want to function in a capacity of an elder, a pastor. It's a part of a calling, and part of that calling is a desire. Interesting, when you look at the terms that Paul says there, he who desires this desires a good work. The, The word good work is literally an excellent difficulty. And I can tell you after years, that's a great description. If you desire an excellent difficulty then you want to be in the ministry. You want to, do you want an excellent difficulty? Do you want difficulty constantly, chronically, because there are unceasing needs and needs that you don't even know are coming, but you'll constantly be told about? Do you want unceasing needs physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally? If you want that, it's an excellent difficulty, though. And he says, and it's work. It's going to be work. It's, there's a labor of love in it, yes, and the Lord gives us the power, but uh, let us never think that somehow uh, it's not what it is. It's often been said before, you know, typically ministry that doesn't cost us very much doesn't amount to very much. Uh, so here he calls them to this work of the tabernacle to meet the needs of the children of Israel. The Levites now were to be given wholly over to Aaron and his sons to help them, to support them, to function in these roles as priests, to support them. And God says, verse 12 here, Now behold, I myself, he says, have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel. Notice, this is key, instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the children of Israel. Therefore, the Levites, God says, shall be mine, because all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast, and they shall be mine. So uh, here what God is going to show us is God says, when I brought about, remember the plagues back in Egypt and the, the death of the firstborn and whoever applied the blood of the doorpost and the lentils, God spared the firstborn of the children of Israel. Well, in light of that, God said, therefore, Since I spared your firstborn, God says, all the firstborn, your children, your animals, your flocks, your herds, all the firstborn, therefore, I claim them as mine. 
they belong to me. And because of that, remember, God gave them instruction. They had to redeem, in a sense, or purchase back their firstborn from God because God laid claim to their firstborn. So if they uh, had a firstborn animal or their firstborn child, they had to pay a redemption price because truly that belonged to God. So they paid a redemption for that. Well, God here now says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make an exchange. God says, since the firstborn are mine, what I'm going to do now is instead of the firstborn, I'm going to exchange them for the tribe of Levi. They will now be mine and I will use them in this capacity. They will belong unto me. They don't get a tribal inheritance. They don't get a lot of the other things that others experience. God said, I'm going to lay claim to the Levites instead to use them for my purposes and those functions. So that's what God's describing here. Instead of the firstborn, God was now taking the tribe of Levi to serve in their place. Verse 14, And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, Number the children of Levi by their father's houses, every male from a month old and above. So Moses numbered them according to the word of the Lord as he was commanded. I have verse 16 circled there. That's what I'm saying in connection. Remember the last chapter, God said, do not number the tribe of Levi. But now look what God says there, verse 16. It says the word of the Lord commanded them to now number them. So again, we do things as God tells us to do them when God tells them to do them. And sometimes God will say, don't do this because maybe God wants us to do it at a set time one page later, one chapter later, one week later, one month later. So God told them, don't do it in the prior chapter. And now he's telling them because the time is right. He says, now I'm telling you, number the children of Levi according to the word of the Lord as he commanded them. So they now do this obediently. Verse 17, these were the sons of Levi by their names, three chief sons originally of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Verse 18 tells us the names of Gershon by their families were Libni and Shimei, and the sons of Kohath by their families were Amram and Izahar and Hebron and Uziel, and the sons of Merari by their families were Mali and Mushi. They must be interesting twins. These are the families of the Levites by their father's houses. So from verse 21, now down through verse 26, God gives to us the numbering of the sons of Gershon. Uh, and it tells us, verse 22, that they were numbered at 7,500. So God's saying, I want you to number all those from these three sons of the line of Levi. And I want you to give me the number of those from a month old and up. And from Gershon, verse 22, there were 7,500. And the family of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle westward. So that was where they were to camp in relation to the tabernacle on the west. And the leader of that household was Eliasaph, son of Lael, verse 24. Verse 25 says their duties, the duties of that particular family within the tribe of Levi, was the tabernacle of meeting, including the tabernacle, the tent and its covering, the screen for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the screen for the door of the court, the hangings of the court, which are around the tabernacle and the altar, and their cords according to all the work relating to them. So the Gershonites, their specific responsibility when they would take down the tabernacle tent structure and move on to journey before they reset it up, their primary responsibility, you can see, was primarily all of the coverings 
Remember, the tabernacle, when we looked at it, was a tent-like structure. It had a, a frame infrastructure, but then remember, it had four different large coverings that went over top of it. And then it also had like a linen, in essence, fence that went all the way around. Now, these were big coverings. These are like big tarp-like things. So their responsibility was to take these things down and to transport them, in essence. Verse 27, we then get instruction for the people of Kohath. And it says that their number from one month old and up, verse 28, from the sons of Kohath was 8,600. Verse 29 says they were to camp on the southern side of the tabernacle. And verse 31 says that their duty included, this was their specific responsibility, the table, that was the table of showbread, the lampstand, remember that was inside, the menorah, the uh, lampstand, the altars, the utensils of the sanctuary with which they ministered, the screen and all the work relating to them. So basically their role was to take the interior furnishings, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, that was their job. When it was time to break camp, they collected those things and they carried and transported those things at God's direction. Verse 32 says that Eliezer, the son of Aaron, was to be chief over the leaders of the Levites with oversight of those who kept charge of the sanctuary. So that was specifically Eliezer's delegated responsibility. He was responsible to provide oversight over some of the leadership. So there were leaders but then he was to provide oversight over that leadership group, in a sense, under God's direction. Verse 33, we're then told, thirdly, from Merari came the family of the Malites and the family of the Mushites. There they are again. And verse 34 says there were 6,200 of them. Verse 35 says they were to camp on the northern side of the tabernacle. And their appointed duty, verse 36, included the boards its bars, its pillars, its sockets and utensils and all the work relating to them and the pillars of the court and all around with their sockets, verse 37, and their pegs and even the cords themselves of the tent. So their basic responsibility, all the infrastructure. Again, remember those boards were all overlaid with gold. These, these were some heavy things. So their job was the actual structural portion of the tent like uh, tabernacle they carried the pillars and the boards and different sockets and pegs uh, that was their responsibility to transport those things and then verse 38 tells us on the eastern side was where Moses and Aaron and his sons they were to camp on the eastern side of the tabernacle which is where the ex, ex, uh, excuse me, the entrance was because they were to be keeping charge of the sanctuary to meet the needs of the children of Israel but the outsider who came near was to be put to death. So verse 39 says, All those numbered of the Levites whom Moses and Aaron numbered at the commandment of the Lord, all those in total was 22,000. So from those three families, Merari, Kohath, and Gershon, of their descendants, you then had 22,000 Levites at this point. And God says, verse 40, number all the firstborn males of the children of Israel from a month old and above and take the number of their names and you shall then take the Levites for me. I am the Lord instead of the firstborn among the children of Israel and the livestock of the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the livestock of the children of Israel. So Moses numbered the firstborn among the children of Israel as the Lord commanded him. 
and all the firstborn according to the number of their names from a month old and above, and those who were numbered were 22,273. So notice there's a differentiation here. God says, I'm going to take now the Levites instead of the firstborn. So they number all the Levites, and when they number all the Levites, they come up to 22,000. And God says, okay, now number presently all the firstborn among the congregation of Israel, and they come up to 22,273. So there's 273 more firstborn than there are Levites. And we're all saying, that's close enough, isn't it? Let's move on. That's, that's close enough, isn't it? But see, God's a God of detail. And God's a God, God doesn't say, well, that, that, that's close enough. No, God's a God of precision. God cares about details. God cares, especially when it's his work, that things be done orderly, that things be done efficiently. So God says, no, uh, those 273 people, they all matter. Every single one of them matter. Every person's significant to me. Every person is cherished. Every person matters. Every person has value. So uh, God here is going to, in a sense, say, look, this isn't an even exchange, so we need to reconcile this because they have value. They have importance. So the Lord, verse 44, spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel and the livestock of the Levites instead of their livestock and the Levites shall be mine Verse 46, and for the redemption of those 273, God's a God of precision. The redemption for that 273 of the firstborn who were among the number of the Levites, you shall take five shekels for each one individually. Take them in the currency of the shekel of the sanctuary and the shekel of 20 jeras, and you shall give the money which the excess number of them is redeemed to Aaron and his sons. So Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above those who were redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the children of Israel, he took the money, 1,365 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And Moses gave their redemption money to Aaron and his sons, according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. So again, God says, no, look, close enough is not good enough. Because <laughs> God says, I care. Every person, they're valuable. Every aspect of what you're doing in the worship of me, in the service of me, it matters. Every part of it. So God says, look, here's how we're going to reconcile the, these two. So what they're gonna have, there's going to have to be an exchange made. So God says, pay a redemption. There was a redemption price that had to be paid for those additional 273. A redemption price to sort of meet out the differentiation that existed there. So again, God did things in a way that was equitable and just and fair and orderly because that's representative of the God that he is. And he asked them to follow those instructions. Again, you could see very easily, people, oh, come on, isn't that close enough? <laughs> isn't that close enough? I mean, we, but again, we see this repetition again and again. Verse 51 emphasizes again that they did this according to the word of the Lord as he commanded them. So, so God instructs them to do this and they follow according to what God says. And again, I, you know, I just think these kind of things, again, to us, we think, oh, details and records and, you know, but again, it's just a reminder to us that, again, keep in mind who God is. Would you, I mean, God's got it quite a bit on his plate, you think? I mean, 
you know, creating everything, controlling the whole cosmos, keeping every one of our hearts beating, keeping you breathing, keeping us sane, keeping us alive, you know, navigating the angels to keep us alive. I mean, maintaining the problems of the world, orchestrating prophetic events. I mean, saving souls. I mean, God's got a lot on us. But look how God, who is so awesome and so powerful, he's not above or too busy for the minutia of everyday details and individuals. He cares about numbers and names and people. He cares about the details of the aspects of what we do and don't. Listen. Oh, oh my, my finances, my finances, my finances. Look, God knows every detail of every dollar in your checkbook. He doesn't just know you have about. He knows you have $22.73. He cares about those things. When we do things for the Lord, he doesn't say, okay, well, just whatever. I mean, yeah, as long as I get the general thing, I just kind of, I can entertain the kids for, okay, an hour. As long as I can keep them from strangling one another and me for an hour, I did children's ministry. No, I, I don't think so. I think God's, no, I care. I care that there's effort and endeavor and and that there's the best effort possible to help every one of those little kids, whether they're three or seven or twelve, to grab hold of my truth at their level and to understand it. Whether we're teaching the Word of God, whether we're leading music, I think God cares about every note. I think He cares about every song. Again, am I saying that God wants us to be in this legalistic lifestyle? No, but what I'm saying is, is God cares. He's concerned. Whatever we do, we should do for the glory of God. And whatever we do, we should know, listen, God is involved in everything. Hey, tonight, the Lord is aware of every detail of your life. He knows your name. He knows your situation. He's aware of exactly what's going on. And not just generally, specifically. He knows. He has record of it. The Bible says that even our tears are recorded. For some of us, our book is this big. It's just a pamphlet. For other of us, we have bookshelves. But God records them all. God knows it all. Because God loves us. God cares. And tonight, in light of that, what has the word of the Lord been saying to you? What's God been saying to you? Listen, isn't a God like that worthy of saying, Lord, I want to hear what you're telling me every day. I don't want to go off of yesterday's instructions. I don't want to go off of the general plan book of kind of what most Christians do in this situation. Look, well, this is what we have. Everybody else just kind of does this, the number, number, number. No, God, what are you telling me to do? And are you telling me to do it now or are you telling me to do the next chapter? And, and Lord, because of who you are and because you're so involved, I want to follow your instructions and your voice. Listen, God is speaking. We need to have the heart, like Samuel said, speak, Lord, your servants listening. Amen? Let's pray.